Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to the end. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they didn't know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Let's have a word of prayer before we unpack those verses. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning, living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Uh, Speaks into our hearts and minds, our very souls. Father, may our hearts and minds be open and attentive to you this morning. May we hear your voice, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, As I think probably most of you um, know, I I spent 10 years at boarding school. Uh, From the age of eight, I was sent off to boarding school. And uh, the the beginning of my time at boarding school was was quite fun, because I didn't quite understand what it was. And, uh, and, the, and the end bit was, was quite fun, but the middle bit uh, was, was all a bit um, miserable. I hated being away from home. I got very homesick and, uh, and I was bullied quite a lot at boarding school. I discovered this sort of, um, there's a sort of food chain in these places and you sort of find your, you find your place in the food chain and I was quite low down. So there are a lot of people above me uh, kind of bullying me. And, and there, are, there are a few poor people below me in the food chain who I got to bully. But that was kind of how the, how the kind of thing worked. And I'm very, very sorry for that in case you're listening uh, on the recording. But, um, but it was a pretty miserable experience most of the time. And so once I'd realised it was going to be a pretty miserable experience, I didn't particularly look forward uh, to going back. So at the, end of, at the end of the holidays, I would get to like, you know, a couple of days before my new term was about to start. And I would start to get this sense of, of dread and then I would wake up on the morning uh, that I was going back. And you, you, sometimes you have that moment when you wake up and then you suddenly realise where you are and what's going to happen. And I would wake up thinking, oh, tonight I'm going to be back at uh, boarding school. And this, I just have this horrible sense of dread about going back. And then uh, I'd get in the car with my, with my mum and we would, and we would drive from Brighton to Canterbury. And it was a sort of couple of hours journey. And in, in those days there was no M25. So we had to go sort of cross country through... Lewis and Hawkehurst, Heathfield, Tenterden, Ashford. I, I remember the routes. We did it so many, many times. Uh, and the journey bit was, was sort of okay because it was, you know, it's quite, we'd listen to the radio and we'd, you know, we'd chat and there were nice things to see. So on the journey, I kind of forget about the destination until we got to, uh, just before you go into Canterbury, on uh, a couple of miles out of Canterbury on the A28, the road 
sweeps round. It's a sort of wide uh, sweeping bend round to the right. I did this dozens of times. It's imprinted on my brain. And on the left-hand side, there's a retaining wall which looks like a chessboard, or at least it did in those days, because it's painted black and white. It looks like a chessboard. And as soon as I saw that retaining wall, suddenly this dread would come back into my heart because I would know we're not far now. And so that's kind of the journey bit would have been all right. The, the, as we, before we set off, it was this sense of dread. And, and just before we got there, it was this sense of dread. And the, the journey bit, we kind of got distracted. Uh, well, I tell you that story because in our, in our studies in Luke's Gospel, remember, we've been on the journey to Jerusalem since chapter 9, verse 51. And we're about to arrive. If you just flick over the page, you'll see in chapter 19, verse 28, uh, Jesus and his disciples arrive in Jerusalem. So, so he's, we're about to arrive. And so he needs to, again, try and, try and impress on his disciples what's actually going to happen when they get there. Because, as, as we read, they're completely clueless. Uh, they didn't understand any of this, verse 34. Its meaning was hidden from them. They didn't know what he was talking about. It's a complete mystery. Uh, and, and Jesus is trying to explain to them what's actually going to happen when they get there. And humanly speaking for Jesus... There's a sense of dread because he knows that within days he's going to be crucified. And we know that humanly speaking, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, while he's waiting to be arrested, he, you know, he's, he's sweating drops of blood because there is such a dread, humanly speaking, in his heart about what is to come. Uh, and so that sense of dread is there again. And it was there right at the beginning. If you want to just, uh, you don't need to, but if you wanted to flick back just to chapter 9, where we began this journey, and it began after Peter's confession of Christ. Remember, there's this moment where Jesus takes his disciples to one side and he says, well, you know, what are people saying about me? Who do people think I am? And they come out with, uh, this is chapter 9, verse 19. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, uh, was one of the prophets uh, of long ago who's come back to life. And then he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? It's the most important question we will ever be asked in this life and the most important question we'll ever give an answer to. Who do you think Jesus is? Uh, It's so significant. In Mark's gospel, this little episode, it's the hinge of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel has 16 chapters and this account comes at the end of chapter 8. And everything in the first eight chapters is about the disciples working out who Jesus is through the clues that he's throwing around. Uh, and then there's this moment where they realise he is the Christ of God. And then the rest of Mark's gospel is, uh, is Jesus explaining, well, he's not, the, he's not the Messiah that they were expecting. But we have this moment where Jesus explains uh, what's going to happen. Uh, chapter 9, verse... Um, uh, I've lost it. Uh, there was 22. Yeah, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So, this little thing that Jesus is recapping here in chapter 18, he, just before he began the journey to Jerusalem, he explained this is what's going to happen when we get there. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. And it makes no sense to them. And when you look at the, uh, the comparable versions in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, uh, the disciples react very badly to this idea that Jesus is going to suffer and die. In Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verse 32, uh, Jesus spoke plainly about this. Peter took him to one side and began to rebuke him. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, 
but the things of men. It's the sharpest rebuke Jesus gives to his disciples at this moment. In Matthew's gospel, we see, uh, we see the same thing, that uh, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus. And uh, chapter 16, verse 22 of Matthew, Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God but the things of men. Extraordinary that Peter, who's the rock on which the church is built, uh, you know, he just doesn't get it. And none of the disciples do. Jesus is saying to them, look, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that's written about the prophets, about the Son of Man, will be fulfilled. He'll be turned over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And they just, they have no framework for understanding this because since they were children, They've been brought up to believe that when the Messiah comes, they're going to see a very great victory. The Messiah, God's anointed one, is going to be one like King David in the Old Testament. He's going to be a warrior king. He's going to lead an uprising. He's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem. Uh, The temple is going to be uh, rebuilt. Jerusalem is going to be established as the capital city of the new Israel. And the Gentiles are going to be utterly vanquished. The Gentile nations that have been oppressing Israel for hundreds of years are, you know, they're not just going to be punished. In in Jewish understanding, there is going to be a bloodbath. Everything that you read in the sort of intertestamental period between the, the Old Testament and the New Testament about Jewish expectation, about what is going to happen when the Messiah comes, is it's, it's going to be a vindictive bloodbath. That's what they've been led to believe. That's how their expectations have, have, have developed. Um, we saw a little, um, just after they set off, you may remember um, back in um, chapter 9, verse 51, they set off for Jerusalem and then they, they're trying to go through Samaria and the Samaritans don't like uh, Jews. And so the Samaritans don't welcome Jesus and the disciples. And do you remember this? Uh, When the disciples, verse 54, James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Uh, Do you remember we were talking about that a few weeks ago, about how often that's what we want God to do to the people that we don't like? Uh, You know, uh, call down fire from heaven because that's what they think is going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. They're like, yes, finally, we're going to get rid of our enemies. And in in their understanding and the way that it had developed, you know, it's going to be a bloodbath. The Gentiles are utterly going to be destroyed and God's chosen people will remain. That's what they have in mind. So when Jesus starts going on about how the fact that the Messiah is going to be turned over to the Gentiles, be mocked, insulted, it, it just makes no sense whatsoever. It's like, no, 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 this, this is going to happen to them. They're not going to do it to you. They just don't get it. And they don't get it until after the, after the resurrection. But Jesus has to, you know, he's trying to tell them. And the point is, the point is that the journey that we're called to as we follow Jesus is a journey like his. The guarantee is resurrection. That's the guarantee. The journey is one of often being mocked, insulted, flogged, killed. It's one of suffering. The journey of following Jesus is one of suffering. That's what he invites us into and the thing with the disciples is they don't understand. They've not got a clue what's going on, but they still follow. They still follow. At this point, they don't, they don't understand. We, why, I was, as I was preparing this, I was just you know, thinking back over the years that I've been following Jesus and just 
thinking of so many occasions when I haven't had a clue what God is doing. You know, when, um, you, know, you know our story, you know, when Sarah went missing 16 years ago, and uh, I had a, you know, days where I had, a few days where I had no idea where she was, and, and then several months where she was away and had no intention of ever coming back home, and just thinking, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing. I don't know what's going, I really don't know what's going on. And then, you know, when Sarah left again seven years ago, I never, I never saw that coming. I never thought that was part of the plan. I thought after what had happened the first time, when she came back, she'd be back for good. I thought, yes, God, you've healed her, you've restored her, you've brought her back, we're going to grow old together. And then she left. And I'm like, Lord, I haven't got a clue. I haven't got a clue what you're doing. Um, Dee was sharing on Thursday night at the ladies' dinner, just, you know, her story of bereavement. And, Lord, I haven't got a clue what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand. And yet, still we follow. So lovely, you, you know, Dee's testimony. Still, you know, and so many, I still follow. Why? Why do the disciples follow? Why do we follow? Because in John's Gospel, John chapter 7 uh, we read this, verse 67, the disciples are beginning to work out the cost of following Jesus, that actually they might lose their lives if they continue to follow him. And lots of the disciples start turning back. And in John six sixty-seven, Jesus says to them, you don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That's why they keep following him, because that's what they've become convinced of. You know, where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Through all the seasons that I've not, been un- not understood what God has been doing, and it's just kind of been a mystery. I've, he's the one with, with eternal life. Jesus, I follow Jesus because it's true, not because he makes my life easy, not because everything makes sense. It's because he's true and because of the resurrection. Because whatever sufferings we may experience in this life, the promise is resurrection. Whatever happens, whatever we go through, whatever we suffer, whatever bereavements come along the path, whatever things happen we don't understand, resurrection. That's the promise. That's the guarantee. And Jesus knew that. So even though humanly his his heart is, is filled with dread at the prospect of being crucified, he knows there's resurrection. And that's why he travels the road. And that's why we travel the road, even when we don't understand. And then we have this little, you just see, it's, it's so exquisite how the Gospels are constructed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You know, so often we just think, oh, well, somebody sat down and they just wrote a load of stuff about Jesus that they could remember. But when you actually study it, you realise actually under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's just exquisitely put together. Because here we have 12 disciples who are blind. They can't see what Jesus is doing. And then immediately, as Jesus approached Jericho, we find a blind man sitting by the roadside begging. So we have 12 people who've been following Jesus and can't see a thing. And now we have a blind man who can't see a thing. What's going to happen? Uh, as they're travelling towards Jerusalem and the way it would work is um, rabbis would walk along and their disciples would walk along around them and, and the rabbis would be teaching as they went along it would be sort of mobile classroom and so the, the disciples are kind of trying to get near they're trying to hear what Jesus is saying so they don't want any interruptions 
so when this guy starts um, calling out, because uh, he hears the crowd going by, you know, the, the crowd just want him to hush. Uh, he, you know, he asks, well, you know, what's, what's happening? He hears the commotion. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he's heard some stuff about Jesus. He's heard the stories. And so he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him. They're like, shut up. We're trying to listen to Jesus. We can't hear what he's saying. Be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And this is where we, uh, in the English, we lose a bit of the strength of the Greek because there are two different verbs used for the first time he calls out and then for when he shouts all the more. Uh, verse 38, he called out. It's just like, oi, Jesus, over here. He's kind of trying to get his attention. It's that kind of thing. Uh, when he shouted all the more, it is a, it's, a, it's like a scream of desperation. It's like he is not going to miss this moment. He is desperate he is desperate to have Jesus come over to him because he knows that Jesus can help him. There's something in there about how desperate are we for Jesus to help us? Uh, how desperate are we in our prayers when we pray for Jesus to make a difference? Do we call out to Jesus and then nothing seems to happen? And we think, oh, well, that didn't work. Or do we have the desperation that this man had of crying as loudly as he could. Son of David, have mercy on me. He's not going to miss this moment. He's not going to let go. And as so beautifully so often happens, Jesus stops a crowd in order to give his attention to one person. Jesus so often stops a crowd in order to give his attention to one person. We should never think that we are so insignificant that God would not be interested in us. It's like um, another occasion that we looked at a few months ago where Jesus is on an urgent journey to heal Jairus's daughter and on the way the woman with the issue of blood touches the hem of his robe and Jesus stops the crowd in order to find the individual because that's the heart of God. God cares about us as individuals. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, my mum always used to think, you know, God loves the world but I don't think he loves me. And so often I was talking to somebody the other week, he said a very similar thing. I can understand that, I, I believe that God loves everybody, but I, I don't understand, I can't accept that God loves me. Well, God does love you and he does love me because that's his heart. He'll stop a crowd in order to give his attention to you in the moment that you need him. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? What an amazing question to have the creator of the universe look you in the eye and say, what do you want me to do for you? What are you, going to, you, know, what are you? What are you going to ask for? If the creator of the universe asks you, what do you want? Uh, do you go big or do you go small? Uh, so often in our prayers, we go small because we think, oh, I don't think God could do anything about that. Uh, well, this guy, this blind guy, he goes big. You know, he could have said, oh, you know, I need some food or, you know, I need another cloak. I get a bit chilly at night or, uh, you know, house will be nice. But he did, no, I want to see. Lord, I want to see. He goes big. And Jesus says to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. He goes big. Do we go big in our prayers? Or have we become so... 
familiar with praying? Have we become so bored with praying? Have we become so despondent at prayers that we've prayed that haven't been answered that actually we've just given up a bit and we'll offer the odd prayer? But actually our, the heart has gone out of our prayer because we've lost sight of who it is that we're praying to, that he's a God who invites us to go big. Uh, what do you want me to do for you? Good question for us to reflect on this morning in our lives, Lord. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see. Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. So we have these, um, these 12 disciples who are blind, can't see what Jesus is up to, can't understand what he's talking about and then, and you might think at that moment oh well, this isn't going very well you know these these are the these should be the early adopters these are the ones who'd be most enthusiastic for what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem and and, and the, like you know Jesus is like oh my goodness you haven't got a clue <laughs> I'm gonna get it in goodness sake but they just don't get it and then there's but then there's this lovely sign of hope there's this blind bloke who gets his sight because that's what Jesus does That's what Jesus does. He gives us sight to see by. There's a lovely quotation from C.S. Lewis. He says, I believe in Christianity um, as I believe that the sun will rise tomorrow. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I believe in Jesus, not just because I see him in the pages of the gospel, but because by him, I see everything else. One of the reasons I became a Christian at the age of 17 was because um, I read a book by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and, and it just made so much sense of the world and the way the world is and why the world is in a mess and what God has done to solve it. And I thought, ah, yes, if I look at the world through the eyes of who Jesus is, it makes sense. Even though there are lots of times when it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> that's the mystery and that's the journey and that's the expectation it's it's suffering it's hardship it's things we don't understand but on the third day he rose again and that's resurrection and that's the certainty and that's what what what, what we hold on to so we are nearly we're nearly in jerusalem and um i realized that because we're nearly in lent we've, we've kind of we spent we spent about three months on this journey and uh, we're not actually going to make it to Jerusalem until after Easter because we've <laughs> we got a bit of a break in the sermon series. So, um, so, so Christy is going to preach next Sunday on the first 10 verses of chapter 19, Zacchaeus and the tax collector. Uh, and then we've got a break. So we're not actually going to make it to Jerusalem until May or, or something. So, um, so, so what a great, great anticipation. You're going to have to wait to find out what happens when we get there. Spoiler alert, Jesus is going to die and rise again, but there we go. So um, just in case you hadn't read that far. But, you know, we've, we've nearly come to the end of this journey, nearly come to this journey. And how much we've, you know, we've learned and discovered on this journey with Jesus. And he knew before he set off what was going to happen when he got there. He set his face for Jerusalem because he knew he was going to suffer and die. And he did it for us because he loves us. That's what we're going to remember in this meal in a few moments. He loves us did it for us, and then on the third day, he rose again. And for you, in whatever you may be struggling with or facing, whatever hardships, whatever struggles, resurrection, he rose again. 
it's a certain victory. So let's just um, take a few moments in, in prayer and uh, we'll just have an open time of prayer. And Jesus said to the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? And he went big. He said, Lord, I want to see. So I want to encourage us this morning in our, in our prayers and in our intercessions, whether we pray quietly in our hearts or aloud, uh, let's go big. So let's pray together for a few moments.